and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm excited to share a conversation with Victoria Kennedy. Victoria is driven by her core values of impact, adaptability, and discipline. These values have guided her as a product leader in early stage startups, an advisor to early stage founders, and now as a founder of the venture studio Seed to Harvest. She is from Atlanta, but calls NYC home. Welcome, Victoria. Hi. Hi. So I always like to hear about people's journey into products. So how did you get into product? Sure. I actually got into product through gaming. That was where I first started my career. I left college. I was originally focused on the healthcare sector, so international community health. I ran a clinic for teen parents. I was really interested in like how health and tech work, but knew much less about tech outside of kind of like mandatory classes we had to take. And so I decided to join a tech startup that I could learn as much as I could. End up joining a gaming company. And that's actually where I learned that product was even like a real job. I like to tell like people I work with now that's like back in my day, like I didn't even know product management was a job. So I kind of found that out in my first job. Mm-hmm. So tell me more about that first job. What did the gaming company build? So it was back in the day of like Facebook games and MLRPG games, so massive multiplayer online games. And we started off as a Facebook game. We actually then transitioned to our own gaming platform as well. The company is called Kabam. So they had this program for recent undergrads that was supposed to be like you go into customer success or uh, community management, you grow up throughout the company. But since it was a startup in and of itself, they did a great job of attracting really smart people, but no idea how to do anything with them. And so we all just kind of forced our own path. And I didn't have a car at the time. So the commute for me was like an hour and a half. We ended up buying another company in San Francisco. So I like learned that game in a day and I was like, okay, I'm going to San Francisco. I know this game better than everyone else now. <laughs> and they were like, sure, okay. And so I ended up joining there as the community manager. And I got really lucky because the game was just like kind of in beta when I joined and it ended up being the highest grossing game at the company. And so I got to learn so much about how products grow, how teams grow, how everyone's role changes as the product grows itself. So I transitioned from being the community manager and sort of ended up being a part of the product team just by like curiosity and boredom. So I had to do all this programming for my role and I was curious about like the efficacy of it and like how do I know this is actually working? Why are we even investing in this? And so I ended up working with a product team to start getting real numbers around it so I could do predictive revenue off of it. And it just kind of developed into this whole like kind of non-future revenue part. And then I started helping the product team kind of make decisions since I had the closest relationship to all of our players because I managed the forums and all the social media. And gamers are obviously super passionate people. In our game as well, had like in-game chat. And so there's just so much information that I could use to guide product decisions. And then actually, as I got better understanding like how to use data, how to then like monetize that, but also understand what motivated people to action, which was really cool. So what were some of the things you learned about in the game that you guys were running? What motivated people to action? So funniest thing, this is a story I used to tell a lot in interviews and I talk about a lot to this day. I learned that the first lesson that we all learned eventually, but I learned it really early likely, is that people often do things that are very different from what they say that they do. And so a big thing for us was like, it was a freemium game. So like 95% of our players never paid a penny, but the 5% that did paid a lot and funded our company. And what was interesting, the game was pretty formulaic in the beginning. It involved dragons. You'd have a different dragon. You expand your cities that way. I mean, they were pretty standard. They were very elemental. And then our producer team got really excited about doing this kind of like undead Halloween themed dragon update. And it was very different than like anything we had done before. We release it. 
And all of our players are like in the forums are like, I hate you. You're so stupid. This is dumb. And they were like, oh crap, should we pull this out? And I was like, well, I'm checking the revenue. We're making the most money we've ever made. So no. Mm-hmm. But like, give me like a couple of days to figure out like why this is happening. And as I start to look into it, I start to like see that a lot of the players who were saying that they were unhappy were players who were kind of like people who had been with the game for a while. And so they felt like really comfortable in the game with the headaches. They made wikis. They, you know, when new players would come, they would be like, this is how you do it. And so they felt very comfortable in being like the guides and the wise people in the game. And so these new game mechanics made them newbies again. And they were kind of upset about that. But also what I realized in a lot of these people, even though they said they didn't spend money, were spending money trying to figure out how to actually like beat the new game mechanics and understand how to play this new part of the game and then about two days later a lot of them like oh my god this is so exciting like I'm having so much fun I get to learn new things again I like how we're growing and they also then we got to become the experts again because they had spent so much time and often money trying to understand how to advance in this new part of the game and so it was really understanding that like the motivating factor for people both in like spending money and complaining was this idea of like understanding the game and like how well could they coach others and be the person who was deemed like wise enough to coach others Um, and how to play this game. And so for me, it was just like super interesting is like one, like, right, like if you just go off of what people say about your product, you can make one decision. If you go off just of like about what people are doing, your product can make another decision. But like the best decisions are made when you have both of those things. And I was luckily enough at that time, especially to like have all of that data and be able to play a complete picture about why people were doing the things that they were doing and how do we as a company benefit from that. That's awesome. I love how your story involves both qualitative and quantitative information. So you're able to look at the data, but you also have all those conversations in the forums and things that people are saying. I think that must be a really rich experience for a product manager. Yeah, it was great. I think I had the access to most data in my very first job. And then I went into earlier stage startups where it was just me. So much less access to data, but figuring then how to do research, how to get the data I need when the team is much smaller. Yeah. So tell me more about that. Where did you go after the gaming company? I actually went to a medium-sized e-commerce company. It was at the tail end of the whole daily deals craze. And so we basically made white labeled e-commerce sites, but really focus on daily deals. And so really niche brands like Fearless and Daily Candy, helping them build their e-commerce sites. Oh, okay. What was the team there like? When it started, that was my very first actual product job. And I got hired in and there was two product managers mm-hmm. because obviously I would need mentorship since this is my first product job. But about a month in, one became the COO and the other one became head of a new business unit. So it was just me again, <laughs> figuring that out. And so especially I think at that time, like, you know, I would ask someone, what should I be doing or focus on as a product manager? And I would get 10 different answers. And so I would go to like conferences, I would like find product leaders and like convince them to be my like mentors, but just trying to find out like who could tell me what I was supposed to be doing. And frankly, just ended up figuring out what worked for me after a lot of trial and error. Mm. Do you have any stories from there that you can share? Sure. I think one interesting thing was like starting off as a PM, I had less of a technical background. Again, I was focused on healthcare. I'm also a dancer. And so a lot of what I was focused on was like community arts. And so I really understood the problem and the people aspect of like very curious about problem statements and like how do you nail what like this like big idea into something tangible that we can actually do? But let's clear on how we actually did it tech wise. And I remember there was this whole conversation because towards the end, the company ended up being acquired about 10 minutes after I joined. And 
one thing was like, we started off with niche companies and then we started adding customers who were like bigger, like I forgot their name, but they were like the Groupon of the UK. And there were some needs that they had as a company that didn't really meet the needs of like most of our customers. And so they had kind of like told our executive team, like, hey, we need this feature. And then they told me, hey, we need this feature. And I was like, but why? And honestly, at the time, I didn't know that was like a product sale. I'm just curious and I need to know why I'm doing things before I do them. And so it never works for me to just be told what to do. I'm like, I need to know why or else like, it just won't work for me. And so I asked why, and they kind of just said, well, like, because they asked for it. And I was like, well, like, I need to know more information. Like we already are doing certain things. Like, can I talk to the customer and see what they need? And so at the time they were like, okay, you can't talk about yourself, but like somebody will go on the call with you. And we had a conversation and we figured out actually what their problem was and a much different solution that they could implement that didn't detract so much from our roadmap that actually still kind of benefited our other customers as well. And so for me, it was like that lesson really. And because I, I think there's something interesting that happens. I actually talked to a couple of friends who do user research, especially like particularly UX. And we were talking about the importance of user research. And one of them were saying like, he's like, I don't think like user research is that important. People often like say like, you know, things they don't mean. For me, I was like, I actually think it's the most important thing. And one of the reasons is like, yeah, people won't say it initially. It's just if I ask you like, why are you with your partner? You'll be like, oh, like, they're really, you know, lovely and they're really attractive and we get along. But like, it's not until I ask you more questions that we really will get to like the real reasons of like, you know, they inspire me to do X. They really fit the life goals that I have. Like, it's really hard for people to know exactly the things that drive them just from one specific question about anything. And so like, if you're only asking one question, then yeah, like people will tell you the wrong thing all the time but not because there's anything wrong with them or because people don't know. It's because you have to ask like better questions. And so for me, it was like kind of my first lesson. of like, even if you don't have all the skills of like, I know how to code or I've been doing product for 10 years, you can always ask why and add value to the conversation that way. Yeah, I agree with your sentiment that user research is the most important thing. And I like how you talk about that. Were you able to convince this friend of yours? I think so. We always fight. So honestly like that's our thing no matter what the I think we're always on different ends of the spectrum but it was an interesting conversation from someone who does research like their sole focus well not their sole focus but he does a lot of like early idea research as well and so I think especially in that phase when you're not Mm -hmm. when you're you're kind of more exploratory it's really hard to feel like you're making progress because everything's exploratory and so I think in that way, sometimes that can probably be the hardest research to do because you're not going like yes or no to like an idea or statement. You're trying to explore and find like a needle in a haystack. Yeah. I like to think of it as mining for gold. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, I think is great, but it's probably also exhausting if you do it every day. Yeah, probably. So what was the next step of your journey after that e-commerce company? So for me, again, kind of going back to those core values, I've always been really curious about how tech could actually like help people. So originally I came up with this idea of like tech and healthcare, adding a little bit more context. My senior year, I did this like sort of thesis from our undergraduate is that you had to kind of do an internship. And I did one on this teen parent and children program. And I worked with teen parents, mostly it was all teen mothers, uh, both in English and Spanish, and just helping provide like childcare. It was also both like, it was like a educational research component. 
and then a like was it actually improving their like physical health uh, they had doctor's appointments every week and we tracked it and at the end of the program I remember there was this like two-year-old who like had some like behavioral issues but really really liked me and so he was like is in a program he was like crying his grandmother's trying to like pull him off of me so that they can leave and I was just like I really care about this but like I don't really have that many skills yet I'm like 21 I'm smart but like people are asking me about like how to deal with like a partner who's in jail or like thinking about things about child care like I don't have answers for these questions like sure I can talk to you about like science but like you know I just didn't have the skills I needed to make the impact I wanted to make and so I just thought that maybe combining tech with that could be something that would give me the impact that I wanted and like what I kind of quickly found in tech like especially working in gaming and e-commerce like those aren't really thinking about social good a lot of the time. They're really focused on making money. And for me, I really wanted to figure out how can you make money, but also have a sustainable business that is focused on helping other people. What does that actually look like in practice? Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, I ended up joining a company where at the time it had what they call three pillars. The three pillars were excellence in technology, being a sustainable business, and social and economic justice. And of course, it didn't always work out as planned, but it was really interesting for me to be in a place where that was constantly something we were thinking about in all of our decision making. And I knew at the end of that, I really wanted to go somewhere where having a social impact was a part of the business, but also where I could learn a lot of technical skills. And so I ended up doing that as a consulting company. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, what kind of projects did you get there? So many different projects. The company was like 75% developers, I think, at that time. So a lot of tech-focused things. So I worked on like large-scale APIs, enterprise-level databases. And I also got to live in Brazil for a little bit with that job, which was great, but really focused on building kind of more enterprise-level complex technical things, which was great in terms of really like, it's where I first learned about APIs. You have to build APIs for a major airlines consumer app. And at the time, I didn't know what APIs were, um, and I was in charge of building it. Um, <laughs> And so I had an amazing developer that I worked with who really broke it down in terms of text messaging. He ended up creating this like whole kind of like presentation around it, but just like people could really help me like understand like more advanced technology and like how to implement that. And so in that way, it was like really, really great. But what I found it towards like the end of my tenure, there's a lot of what we were doing again were really highly technical projects. And I was getting more into like continuous discovery and human-centered design and how could we do more like higher level, like kind of encapsulating bigger business problems because we also did a lot of agile transformation but it was still really focused on the IT side of the business and not the business as a whole and so I wanted to kind of move somewhere where I could get more into those kind of building products in that space so I moved to this company that was more of a design agency but that had a really big like design research background that was trying to move more into the technology space and so I did some really interesting projects there for like the consumer app for a major news organization and different things like that and like a kind of consumer loan application for a bank and so it was really interesting to kind of do more like consumer facing where you could really match customer research with data to make really great products. Yeah. So tell me a little more about how you do that now. Once you got to this point in your career, when you're working on, you know, some consumer facing things, what are some of the things that you did along the way to use user research and quantitative data as well to make decisions? Yeah. So I really forgot what conference I went to, but her name is Teresa Torres. And I got really interested in the idea of like, how do you make user research continuous? Because again, kind of going back to that first company I worked in when I worked in gaming, even though no one would call it that, we, I kind of had availability of continuous research, right? Like 
we had their player forums, we had all the wikis that they did. I was in charge of social media. So I was constantly getting feedback from our players. They also were convinced that somehow I was both the engineer, the game producer, and ran on all the forums. Like they thought I single-handedly ran that entire game. So I got a lot of feedback, both good and bad all the time. Um, <laughs> and what I realized as I like went further into the product space, especially the consulting space, research was often front loaded. And so you do like your two to four weeks of research, then you go build your product. Months later, you come back and still something's wrong and people are asking why. And that's mostly because you need feedback at like each part as often as possible when you're building this out. And so when I was in an organization called Hustle, we had a, a researcher who then became a product manager as I worked with her. And then our, our design lead that I worked with, and we started thinking about like how we could do more of a continuous process. And so kind of like how I talk about it now is breaking it out into three phrases, like the discovery part, which is like you're using research to validate like your, who your customer is and what problem they have. And also, especially in the like company space, like if the problem people are talking about is actually a problem at all. And so you're really validating, does the problem exist? And if it does with who? The second part, that's your standard like user interviews. I don't do focus groups a lot, but like if you do focus groups, reading through your feedback, reading through your forms, whatever you can to like get the information you need to validate it. The second part is in actually validating the solution, right? And so that's when you're like, okay, we have an idea what the problem is. There's a bunch of different ways we could solve for it. Like, how do we know which one is best? And so going back to customers and validating what solution actually works for them. And so I've done everything from like wireframing and balsamic to sometimes using like Keynote. Designers can do wonders with Keynote. People were like, is this a real website? And I was like, no, but I'm glad we got here. <laughs> um, you know, prototyping, but whatever you need to actually go validate the solution that you came up with actually works or doesn't work. And then it's like, once you've built that solution, what's like the first version of that and actually getting into customers' hands and still learning along the way. Like, is this a higher risk profile for certain customers? Will this break something internally? And so there's so many questions that you have all along the process from the initial idea to like getting into customers' hands that if you don't have research or a way to contact customers and get that feedback along the way, you end up just like making mistakes that sometimes are small, but sometimes become bigger because you didn't get the answers you needed at the time where that decision was really critical. And so we all kind of worked together, the three of us, to really figure out like how we can build research continuously into our practice as we were building. And then I've taken that into other organizations that I've worked with afterwards and then also when talking to founders and startups. Awesome. I love hearing stories about people using continuous discovery. It's so critical. So when you've taken that to future projects or, you know, later projects of yours, what has the response been like? Have you had anybody who was skeptical? And if so, how did you convince them that it was worthwhile? Yes. Well, I think two things there. One interesting thing is that when you make things simple, people sometimes think that means it's easy. And so when you say like, oh, you just need to validate the customer problem, you need to validate the solution, and then you build and learn, people are like, that's too simple. Like, it can't be that. I'm like, just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not incredibly hard. You like, you don't need to make this like really complex process. That doesn't validate that it's a hard thing to do. It just makes a hard thing harder. And so I found that to be like one of the biggest hurdles is that you know, people like frameworks that like sound complicated or like make them feel very advanced, even if that's not what they need. And even if it detracts from like getting to the thing that they actually need. The second thing actually heralds back to like what we we're talking about earlier in terms of user research at a founder that I worked with recently, where he was like, I don't need to talk to customers. Like they don't know what they're talking about. And it's also funny because we had a really interesting conversation because his startup is not in America, it's actually based in Africa, specifically in Nigeria and Kenya. 
And he was saying it really frustrates him. A lot of user research tactics are very U.S. centric and not even just Western, but very U.S. centric. And the culture there is very different about like going out and just asking people questions like people are going to answer you. They don't know you. They don't have the same like trust in you. And so we ended up having a really great conversation about like, how do you do user research in different cultures, which is something I hadn't actually thought that much about. And now I've just been doing a lot more research on. But like, what was interesting about that conversation is like, again, like when I first asked about like, why don't you want to do user research? It was just like, oh, I don't think it's valuable. But as I dug more and brought me to this really interesting space of like, oh, yeah, how do we make user research like more inclusive? What does that actually look like? What it look like in different cultures, especially as more and more products are built outside of the U.S. and for audiences outside of the U.S. And even within the U.S., there are certain cultures and like sub markets that are never built for. So what does that look like to do research with those cultures and build for them as well? So that wasn't exactly the question that you asked, but like, it was just interesting where that conversation ended up in terms of like, how do you think about the research that you do? Yeah. So what have you learned about doing research with different cultures? How do you get past some of those US centric challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think, and and to be fair, like I haven't done a lot of it because I mostly work with US based companies. But where I've thought about it a lot is like, so the Venture Studio we're working on, we're really focused on kind of like non-traditional founders, but basically more diverse, less white cis men as founders. But like, what does it look like, particularly not only to have founders that are underrepresented or wildly underestimated, but what does it look like to also build for those communities? And so a lot of what I've been doing research on, and I did a kind of a research, I talked to about 20 different Black founders last year. And what's a really interesting thing is other VCs, when they're trying to raise money, seem to not understand their market. And so there's a really interesting uh, VC, I think it's called Rare Breed VC, where he talks about the story about this woman, this Black woman, wanting to do a startup around wigs. And he worked in VC at the time, so he was trying to help her raise money. And people were like, I don't understand the context. Like, is this market that big? And he was like, of course it's that big. But I think, honestly, it sounds simple, but all this to say is like, I think it's really just about like being open and willing to learn about other cultures, right? Like for me, I'm like, I'm in Mexico right now. And like, if you take the time to just like learn about the cultures that you're supposed to be like representing, like some of those things will probably come through. And so for me, it's, I don't think it's so much about doing anything particularly special other than taking the time to be like, if I'm building a product for Black women in Mississippi, I should probably go talk to Black women in Mississippi. Yep. (laughs) Same thing with like Valentine, customer thing. I like, I don't, sorry, this is a disappointing answer, but yeah, I don't think it's anything like particularly big or complex. I think it's more just really like, okay, if I'm doing this, then I better go make sure I actually know the people that I'm doing this for. And I also, something me and my like business partner have been talking a lot about is like this idea of intersectionality and not obviously in its original context, which is like a very legal context, but in the context of like, what does it mean when you have different people with different perspectives together, but not just to like draw on their own, but to kind of highlight their own perspectives. And so like what I mean about that is like if I'm working with someone, as I've worked with people who maybe are more in the accessibility space or I'm a black woman from the South and I work with someone who's Latinx from Mexico, there are definitely things that we have in common, but there are things that we definitely have that are not in common. And we kind of highlight those as we talk. But as I build products and I think about it, And I think about a central problem statement that might apply to both of us. I think about the nuances of both. So like, you know, maybe I'm building like, 
for instance, something around banking. But if I know, and I understand, like I'm trying to build a banking app for both like US and Mexico. If I have that understanding that there's some cultural differences in Mexico, I'm building something that can actually do both markets instead of discounting one. Mm -hmm. Where I feel like a lot of times what happens now is that you build a product and you're like, we're just going to say that this culture works for everyone and move on instead of figuring out how do you from the beginning think about all the different stakeholders involved and build for all of them. But not again, not build for all of them in the way that's like doing too much, but like what is the core that really maps to everyone? And then what are the specific nuances that you have to hit in order to really be valuable for all of these different markets? Yeah. So it sounds to me like, you know, at the end of the day, working with different cultures when you're doing user research is a lot about understanding that culture and taking the time to get to know them. Yeah. So you mentioned your business partner and tell us more about what you're doing now. Sure. So I've been working on this idea for about a year now in Venture Studio, and it's a fairly new idea to me. I had a lot of work practicing consulting, and I knew about the venture space, obviously, from working in venture-backed companies, but not as like a venture capitalist myself. But I got really interested in the idea of like, one, the part about consulting that I love is just kind of like learning about these new, like different industries and be able to take lessons I learned from airline and put them into e-commerce and like understanding how those different problem statements might relate to each other and building products from that. But also what I love is just like starting companies. Like I love the beginning where you're just like, okay, this is an idea. How do we actually get to a point that like someone can use this? And that's what I'm really good at is like getting through the chaos and be like, okay, this is what we're building. Let's build it, build it in 10 weeks. And this is how we kind of continue to learn and grow after it. And so it became something I was really interested about, interested in doing like personally, but then starting it myself, what I became really curious about and what I've been thinking about a lot over the past couple of years is I've personally just like had such a hard time staying in tech at times and have seen so many people who are not, you know, white males just have a really hard time feeling like they can stay in tech from feeling pushed out to being burned out to like just feeling like things weren't for them. And even like, especially as a product manager, like, you know, I'm sure you've seen this too, right? Where you read all those uh, silly articles where they're like, we found out AI was racist. And you're like, well, yeah, the people who are writing the code are people. And so if they don't think about people who are different from them and like the AI will do the same thing. It's, you can't just like code away people's own biases. Like you have to think about them actively and figure out like how to do something differently. And so I've been thinking a lot around how I could make an impact in that and, and what that would look like. And so this kind of idea of a venture studio came together both from that impact angle of like, I think if we could start building the type of companies we would like to see, we could start to make the impact that we want to see. But also just personally, I think it's just something I love to do. I love starting companies. I love working with super early stage founders. Like I did work with Techstars last year and another organization called Visible Hands that's focused on underrepresented founders. Mm -hmm. And so I started on this idea last uh, year. And then I'd been talking to Isabella. I asked her to kind of help me just kind of give feedback and like focus in. So we started meeting weekly. Then she got really excited. And this year we really started focusing on like, okay, like what can we do to get started? And so we're starting with a pre-accelerator program. We also start fundraising this year. Awesome. That's very exciting. Yeah. So it's pretty recent and that's for from seed to harvest, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So is there a particular angle that you're focused on with the kinds of companies that you're looking to work with? Yeah. So we're definitely looking for like unrepresented and like underestimated founders, but we're also looking and what we kind of we're calling like the toolkit we're focused on is like really how do you focus on the people part of building products and cultures and like helping them get to MVP and traction 
uh, throughout kind of like using the toolkit that we are developing. Also based off like our own experiences of being kind of in these environments where like you don't have a lot. So what are the different types of things you can use, pick out these different activities that get you to the results that you need, but based off like who you are and the resources that you have. And so our focus is really on like underrepresented founders, but focus on building like people first products and cultures. And that's what we're really matching, especially in like the wealth creation space. And so we're thinking like crypto and fintech, but also real estate, but anything that's thinking about like how wealth is like generated currently and how it could be in the future as well. Awesome. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a really needed area for more people. You can have as many people working to help grow things like that as possible. That would be awesome. Yeah. We're very, very excited and just been really lucky to like just find this and create this network of people who are also really passionate about it and have just helped guide us a lot, especially as like someone fairly new to like the fund manager side. So I've been doing a lot of, I got a bunch of programs last year and I'm working on like our fund model now. And I've just been able to like email people like two in the morning and be like, hello, I'm having <laughs> a little anxiety about this model. Like, can't we talk about this? And they're like, sure, why not? So yeah, just very lucky, but also very excited to really start doing what we're doing. And like right now too, I like freelance and I work with some early stage startups and like do advising for them, but really excited to start like institutionalizing what we're doing. That's awesome. That's very exciting. So I would love to touch a little more on, you know, the difficulties of staying in tech. Mm -hmm. I think we don't talk enough about it as an industry. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you see that you feel like we could all be doing better at? Sure. I think the first thing is just being honest. I think I've been in a lot of companies that, you know, talk about diversity, inclusion, and like social impact. And at the end of the day, like no one's perfect, but like your actions have to match your words. So if you are talking about being a diverse and inclusive company, but all of your diversity and inclusion is at the entry and mid-level, that's not really diversity and inclusion because all your stakeholders and all the people who like have the power to make decisions or like decisions that go across a company are still people who are not diverse and inclusive. <laughs> um, and so it just doesn't work. And like, I've been in a lot of a companies and seen it with like friends that I have as well, who like they rely on the people of color in their organization or the white women in the organization to start the ESG groups and to do all these initiatives on top of their existing jobs, which means they become even more likely to burn out because they're doing labor that they aren't being paid for. And that probably isn't going to necessarily give them a leg up in the company itself. And it's not work that they were trained to do. And so it's just like, for me, like being honest about where you are and what you actually want to do as an organization, I think is really important. I think too, is being clear about the amount of work it's going to take to change. Like we want to make the current culture obsolete. We want to make obsolete the culture of like hustle at all costs to you burn out about the only people who are getting paid are the people who invest in the founders. And like, you can work for a company for a long time, but like, if your investing doesn't work right or they get acquired too early or whatever, or even if it doesn't like sell for the amount you thought it would, like, especially in startup culture, which I think is changing, is like, you, you're supposed to work that hard because at the end of the day, if the company does really well, you'll make this like life-changing sum of money, which sometimes happens, right? But for a lot of times it doesn't. And it's okay, like it's a risky endeavor, that's why we do it, but like, people shouldn't have to like burn out and like get there to get there. But like also what we want to see is like a diverse and inclusive culture from the foundation, right? Not just like as an add-on or something nice to have, but really seeing and value it from the beginning and then value people from the beginning as well. But that's like a huge undertaking, right? Like a system that already exists, changing it from the foundation is a huge endeavor. And so like 
I think a lot of the times when like people talk about making tech and, you know, venture more inclusive and diverse, it's like, I don't know if there's a real, again, kind of going back to honesty about how difficult it will be. And then it means the power structure will need to change. The infrastructure in which we use to do this will need to change. Because there's so much from like, I was talking to a friend of like, for me, it's like wealth isn't just about money, right? You know, there's all these statistics about, you know, how black households have like a fraction of the net worth of like white households, which is bad and, and hard. But the other thing is like a lot of reason founders, like, you know, I've talked to like friends who are founders who are white and they're like, yeah, I have a friend who's a founder and that person is like, it's a B2B company. And so they're helping be my first startup person. Or like, I have a friend of a friend who's like, dad is a VC and I can kind of use him that were like kind of my first check. Like so much about like, wealth than just the direct money but the access to information and resources yep and like that's all part of the infrastructure and it's like vc is super opaque right it's like you can read a lot of articles like it's even funny now when we talk to our like mentors and advisors and we're like oh we thought we needed this they're like yeah no most of the stuff you see on the internet is a lie like you just need to like really work on your relationships and find the right people and it's like who does that benefit right who does it benefit to keep something gated who does it benefit to say that this is the way things work, but you know, actually it works this other way. And so for us, it's like, we're excited about this, but like, it's also scary and daunting too. And we know it can't just be us, but I think that's why it's like, so important is like that we all kind of talk about like realistically what is it going to take to make the changes we want to see and how do you go about actually making those changes yeah what you're saying really resonates with me and in particular another episode that i recorded recently was with janice frazier who was talking about how we make durable decisions and really that the first starting point is getting everybody to recognize where everyone's at Mm. that even just that starting point of being like, well, we're probably all coming to the table with a different opinion of the current state. And we need to start with what is understanding the current state. And Mm -hmm. only then can we be honest about the work it'll take to get from here to there. Yeah. That's a really big thing. I like kind of even taking that lesson from product, the consulting company I was talking about, I worked with, we used to do these things called inceptions where we take anywhere from one to two weeks to kind of kick up a project. And the first thing that we always did was get every stakeholder in the room. So the people who worked on it day to day, executive leadership from both sides or all sides, if there were multiple companies involved, and really just agree on like, why are we here? What are our goals? And how do we make sure that we get what we need out of this? And it's so simple, but again, like it's so impactful that if you can get the ideas from the VP day two instead of day 75, when it very much interrupts your roadmap, it's a very different conversation feeling. And then also having like a working agreement. Like there was a great project I did for, we had to rebuild a major news organizations like app in about 10 weeks and we did it. But that was because like the first three days, I again, got all the stakeholders in a room and we had a conversation about like, what are our goals? We prioritized those goals. We then talked about like, these are the goals, but we're not focused on the specific features. We're just focused on solving those problems that relate to those goals. Yeah, everything prioritized. And we had a working agreement around, we do not stick to features, we stick to problems. Yes. And so if we know a feature doesn't work, We'll talk about new ways that we could do it. But again, we don't have conversations around like, can't get that feature, but we're still solving that problem. And here's how best to solve that problem. And we were able to do something incredible in 10 weeks, but that's just because we got aligned all together at the beginning of the project and then had an established working agreement about how we would deal with issues as they came up. And like in the same thing, just on a you know vastly different scale, it's like, okay, if this is the commitment we're making, if you want to make VC and tech better, this is what it actually looks like. It's kind of like, you know, when you go into those meetings and people are like, we're going to make, you know, the next super app. And you're like, okay, what does that actually mean? 
<laughs> is that what you actually want? And what does that really look like? And I think almost with anything, it's really defining what you mean and defining what the end goal looks like. That's like the most important part for not only just getting shared context, but to really making sure that's actually what you want to do at all, right? Because it's like you get so attached to the words and then you realize like, oh, it's not actually what I want to do. This is the thing I want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I love how you tie it back to the problem and stay focused on what problem you're solving. That's really important. So what kind of advice do you have for product people who maybe are struggling a bit in their current role? Maybe they're not getting the recognition that they think they deserve or they're not getting you know, the opportunity to, to move into leadership. How would you tell them to move forward? So I've been thinking a lot of lately about like reframing both like leadership and progress. So I'm a huge Brene Brown fan and she talks a lot and being like, oh, well, like I'm not like head of product or like I don't have the title or like I don't have as many people who report to me. Therefore, that must mean X about me. And really, it's like the best thing about product is that like even if you're pretty junior, you're already a leader. You're already getting people together to do something that you actually have no authority to tell them to do, right? Like you're never anyone's boss. <laughs> and the best leaders, people don't follow them because they have to, it's because they want to do the thing that people are propositioning. And so like immediately from day one, if you're a product person, you need to think about how do I get all of these people who frankly don't necessarily have to do what I say to do what I say. And even if they do, they can always fill out, figure out ways to undercut it because they're the people actually doing the work. Like you're not doing the code, you're not doing the design like they are. And so for me, it's like thinking about like one, more than likely if you're a product person, you're already a leader. And so really understanding how do you lead and what does that look like and, and thinking about it more of like, what are the skills I'm already developing that can be translated that I can start talking about? Because I think what took me a long time to realize is like how to talk about the great things I was doing. I thought there was only like one standard way. And so I was like, well, I don't have this title. I have to do this thing. So I guess I'm not capable of doing this. But like once I figured out how to talk about it, like, no, these are the skills I've developed. These are the things that were accomplished. It made a lot more sense about how I could like do these other things that weren't necessarily like planned out for me. Also, when I think a lot about progress, I think just something I got from a product manager that I'll never forget, it's honestly just like much harder to progress as a product manager. Like engineering teams grow like tenfold in a year. Most companies, unless they're giant companies, never get more than like 10 to 20 product managers. And that's like, if you're lucky. So like, it's going to be really hard to get a manager or position as a product manager unless you're starting with the early, early stage startup, just because that's the way those companies grow. Your team is not going to be big enough. You still need three to four product managers where you really need a like lead or manager over them. And so your career growth is not going to be necessarily like how other people think about growth and thinking about like, what do you actually really want to get out of it? Do you want to be head of product or do you just want to take on bigger and bigger products? And I think the best thing about being a product manager is like you can make those skills really applicable to so many other things so like you can become a founder you can go into VC right mm -hmm. there's just so many things that you can do and so figure out what it is that you actually want to do and figure out how to talk about your skills and create the narrative that fits into the thing that you want to do I hope that answers your question but I have built a lot with anxiety and what I've realized a lot lately in the past couple of years is that like, I know I'm in an anxious place when I think there's only one or two decisions. When I think there's only one or two options is yes or no. That's when I know I'm anxiety. Yeah. Because in reality, there's always so many more options. But when you're in that place of just like, this is what it should be, or this is what I should do, yep. you narrow your options. And if you can just come from a place of like, what are all my options and what do I actually want to do? It's just like a much easier decision, even if that decision is to leave companies, which I've done. So, you know, yep. sometimes it's just like, this isn't the right place. I got to go. 
And sometimes it's like, this is the right place, but I'm not going to get exactly what I want, but I can get this to go get what I actually want. Yeah. Awesome. So where can people find you if they want to learn more? Sure. So unfortunately, well not unfortunately, I'm not great at social media, so I don't have Twitter or Instagram, but we do have a website. It's seedtoharvestvs.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Victoria Kennedy. And yeah, that's the place you can find me. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Victoria. Thank you too. This is great. The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.